0: And more and more of us will get it by the end of the year that we have to dream new realities instead of being fixated on the old structures that weren't really working. Citizen Podcast. Welcome
1: to Citizen Podcast. This is Carrie Kelly. This interview was part of our Inaugural Citizen Live event, which is a monthly live broadcast of the podcast that invites you, the community, to join the conversation. And we were so blessed to feature Lama Rod Owens, author of two of our favorite books at Citizen Well, the newly released Love and Rage and Radical Dharma, which he co-authored with Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams and Dr. Yasmin Siadula. But first, I want to give a shout out to our community on Patreon, who has made it possible for us to keep doing the work through a pandemic, through an economic and political crisis, but also keeps us accountable and real and pushing the envelope of courageous conversations that are independent, transparent and authentic. Thank you. If you're not a member, you can join us for as little as $2 a month so that we can keep making content that matters for citizens who care. Now back to the show. Lama Rod Owens is a Buddhist minister, author, activist, yoga instructor, and generational leader who is showing us a path to liberation through anger. In our conversation, he says... So many of us have been led into believing that the spiritual practice is something that's supposed to be about happiness and having fun and going to beautiful spas and looking beautiful and having the right clothes. But really, the spiritual path is about the work. And I've been learning through his book and through this conversation that part of the work is examining our anger and rage and asking ourselves, what is my anger trying to protect? What is the hurt and heartbreak that lies underneath that needs to be tended to? He says, being in relationship to our brokenheartedness, no matter who we are, is one of the most honest, authentic, and disarming things that we can do to create community together. This isn't a book that you just read. It is a labor of love, and we are here for it. Lamarad, oh my gosh. Thank you so much for being here. Um, gosh, I, I mean, I just want to show you my books so that you can just see the, the where and the, the post-its, the <laughs> scribble. I've drooled on these books. I've cried into these books. Um, and Love and Rage in particular, and I'm excited to talk about this, um, really changed me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited to dig in. And, you know, I think the first question I want to ask you is, how does it feel to have your words read back to you?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. It, it, I I really, the first reaction is, who wrote that? Uh, because it's, it's, you know, there's a, a beauty and an honesty to it, you know, and it's hard to, at least in my process, it's hard to connect to the, honesty and the beauty of it we are always so close to it and I've been close to this writing for almost two years now you know so when I hear the, it read back to me it feels it it feels like a medicine like a balm you know um, and it's it's so restorative to hear yeah
1: I um I had the privilege of reading your words on Sunday mm-hmm at the um the great radical race Readathon, <laughs> 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 which if you all don't know about this it was um, um a 12 and a half hour collective it was a ritual truly yeah. mm-hmm. um collective uh, reading of radical dharma which is a book that you co-wrote with reverend angel kyoda williams and dr yasmin siadula mm-hmm. um and i got to read a passage from remembering love um, mm-hmm. And was so struck by your words and I, I said to angel afterwards i was after i read it i was sweating profusely <laughs> and i was i was genuinely struck um and um one of the things you wrote is that there is healing through lineage you said sometimes i cannot describe what i mean by lineage yet my experience of lineage is about being received and held within a field of continuous loving warmth, kindness, and compassion. It is about the transhistorical gifting of unconditional acceptance. It is the inheritance of permission to transcend the silliness of living out of the confinement of the ego-bound self. It is permission to sprout wings and take to the sky as others have before me. And it made me reflect on how lineage reminds us that we're not alone in this work. Um, so I'd love for you to, to start off by just sharing your lineage with us.
0: Absolutely. I, I come from so many lineages. Um, my first lineage is the lineage of, of Black people, of, of Southern, poor Black people and the American South. That's my first lineage. Um, and I, have, I come from the lineage of the black church and that's another lineage. Um, I come from a queer lineage, you know, and that's my other lineage. Um, those are the three first lineages that shaped me, you know, that gave me a voice in the world and it taught me how to survive within systems that were trying to annihilate me, to erase me. You know, so I was embraced by that lineage and the ancestors within that lineage, you know. And then that gave me, that those lineages opened the door into my the spirit, spiritual lineages that I would embrace in, in order to really continue to move towards freedom. So my lineage of Tibetan Buddhism, the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism, you know, the lineage that actually saved my life. You know, lineage that taught me about my mind, it taught me about my heart, Uh, it taught me how to dream in a way that I never dreamed before. It it taught me how to dream about liberation in a way that I'd never been taught to dream about liberation before, you know? And it made me believe in freedom, it made me believe that it was possible. and there have been so many lineages, you know, and my, another lineage that I've been trained in is the Kashi lineage, you know, and that's the lineage in which I trained um, in yoga in, and that's the lineage founded by Ma Jaya Sati Bhagavati, who was an American woman uh, who died about eight years ago. Um, and she awakened and created this kind of American interfaith lineage um, with uh the inspiration of her lineage you know um and that's the lineage that taught me about the mother actually it gave it gave me the language to embrace shakti and and the divine feminine consciousness and that has really propelled me into the space that gave me the the foundation finally to to write this book you know, to write Love and Rage, you know? Um, all my lineages before gave me the foundation to write Radical Dharma, and then Kashi came along and gave me this final gift, you know, to to write Love and Rage from a place where I felt as if I was speaking from the blessings of the mother, mm-hmm. um, of Tara, who's right here always on my shoulder.
1: Beautiful. Yeah. Um- so your most recent book, you just mentioned it, Love and Rage, has um, so much medicine in it. And one of the things that, that you said um, in this book that really resonated with me is that once you start the work of liberation, you can't stop the work of liberation. Yes. And I imagine that's especially true through the contemplative practice, right? Mm-hmm. That like once you become clear seeing, you can't. You can't unsee, you know, and it's funny sometimes mm-hmm. when I tell the story of my own like spiritual awakening I say to people like be careful what you wish for because <laughs> yes. there's there's no going back exactly. Um, so I, I would love for you if you if you would to tell us of of your own sort of waking up your own story of waking up At that intersection specifically mm-hmm. of liberation and mm-hmm. contemplative practice.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and to speak to, to that piece just for a second, yeah, you, once you glimpse happiness, you'll never forget what happiness is. Like, you when, when you, when you taste happiness, that will be a taste, uh, um, it will, it will be something you'll never forget, and you'll always be oriented towards that experience for the rest of your life. You know, the, the act of violence and harm will be something that becomes so antithetical. To who and what you are when you have an authentic embrace and experience of happiness. Um, but to speak of liberation and the intersection with contemplative practice, you know, I have always, again, been so concerned with freedom. You know, I've always, from I, from as earliest as I can remember, I'd always been thinking about, okay, what else? You know, what else? Um, and I worked the Black radical prophetic tradition really well when I was growing up, reading, and then getting into activism and organizing. The Black Panthers became really like heroes, you know, heroes and heroines for me. Um, any experience or any any history of Black people organizing to get free became what guided me towards my understanding of liberation, and I was so fortunate in my early 20s to join um, an intentional living community in the Catholic worker tradition, Um, and where we were just a a community of activists who lived together, who worked together, and we were just trying to help people get free, and we were trying to disrupt systems of violence by getting on the streets and organizing, disrupting, doing what we could, you know? Um, And I was also really fortunate to Be in relationship with folks in that community who had been doing the work for decades of bringing their spiritual practice into conversation With their activism and that was the first example of really particularly Buddhists Being really actively engaged in social liberation work, you know, and that was so inviting for me, you know And when I finally started getting interested in meditation um, to work with, you know, depression at the time you know I really had this amazing you know kind of mentorship from the elders in the community that helped me to continue this getting involved with this kind of learning about my mind and learning about ultimate liberation while never forgetting that I was still working to get socially free.
1: Yeah I remember reading your story in the book mm-hmm. and um and being really inspired how, um, how you kind of came through like the doing liberation into the being liberation. And then the two, the two streams, it seemed like in your story really converge. Yes,
0: yes. It converged, it kind of, it collided and that colliding just startled me and woke me up. It, it was a jolt and I was never the same again. You know, when those two worlds come together, when those two pursuits come together, the things that you love the most begin to intertwine, then that's where the work really begins. Yeah. You know, that's where you, for me, that's where I begin to soar, in a way. You know, and, and not that the soaring has made things easier, it's actually, has made it much more complex. You know, because every day is a really complex, nuanced conversation between ultimate liberation and social liberation you know because it's so easy to slip to one extreme <laughs> you know but yeah. the, the 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 work is to stay in the middle to always be integrating weaving and twining both um, of these streams together
1: it um i love that framing and it reminds me of like this work is capacity building yes. right like that we like the soaring is just like a bigger and bigger capacity to hold the messiness the mess the messiness the unraveling yeah. right the unbecoming in many ways yeah. Um, and so I want to, I want to talk about anger mm-hmm. talk about like holding the messiness and the yeah. two, the two colliding, um, forces, right. Um, mm-hmm. that have to catalyze, right. In a way to become skilled. Yes. Um, and I just want to say before I read this is that, um, I, you know, I, I never really contemplated my relationship with anger until this book. I mean, like, I knew that I had like righteous indignation, and I was like fierce um, and fiery. <laughs> like, I knew that was in me, and that was what drove my activism. But I really didn't look at what was underneath it um, until I read this, and it it really shook me um, in like the best way, in the be- in, like a way in which I was um, I was truly impacted. And so, you write in this book about how anger and rage has been a real pathway to your awakening and how anger is actually trying to tell us something, right? But it's, but it's not the main event, I love that. That anger is trying to tell us something but it's not the main event. And that really we should be curious about the, about the anger and what's underneath it. And one of the prompts that you give in this book that was so stunning um, is um, what is your anger trying to protect? And that's the question that actually like got me to start doing the real work around my anger, if I'm being mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I would love for you to share with us, like, what is the practice of, of like lifting the rock up, yeah, and yeah. looking underneath, in, in, um, and being brave enough to face what 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 hurts.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll start approaching that question by first saying that. In many ways, I had no idea what I was doing when I agreed to write a book about anger. (laughs) Um, I just what
1: you wish for. (laughs)
0: Exactly, exactly. I I knew that that was in the air, that was in the atmosphere, that was the question I kept getting over and over again. And and that annoying, pesky voice was like, "Well, you you have to do this. You know, this will be a challenge." And I was looking for I was looking for something to write about uh, as a follow-up to Radical Dharma. And, and this just seemed like I was the book was calling me. You know, The book hadn't formed, but it was calling me. My ancestors were asking me to move into this process to really begin to understand what this was. And I knew at the beginning that this wouldn't be a self-help book. You know, it wouldn't be a mindfulness book. It wouldn't be really a book out of my own lineages. It would be something that brought together everything, you know. And so the way that I got into the book was this question it's like, okay, my anger is functioning there for a reason, it is doing something really important, you know, and I knew that it was protecting the hurt. You know, and that's where I started. I was like, okay, where do I go from here, you know? Um, And to do that work, I, I had to go back and really live through all the times in which I worked with my anger in the past and all the teachings that I'd ever gotten. I hadn't really ever gotten a lot of really intense teachings on anger, you know? But the teachings were really about emotions you know, so I was like, okay, how do I work with my emotions? You know? And of course that brought me closer and closer to really understanding anger. And for me, you know, the primary teaching, if you study like Buddhist literature, you'll know that the antidote to anger is patience. You know, and that just wasn't enough <laughs> for me. <laughs> Like, I understood that teaching, absolutely, but I needed more than patience, and I started delving deeper and deeper, and I realized that in order for me to understand what my anger is protecting, I had to give my anger space. I actually had to take care of it. I had to ask my anger what it wanted. You know, I had to treat my anger like the most beloved. And then once you feed anger like that, once you feed anger love and space and nurturing and you tend to it, it begins to reveal. It begins to kind of open, you know, and it lets you see past it, you know, because this is our hurt is the most precious thing our anger is protecting. So you earn the trust of your anger. And once you do that, the anger opens and it begins to reveal to you the trauma, the woundedness, the brokenheartedness. And you have to take it seriously.
1: Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's so much nuance around anger, um, especially in a moment where like anger is valid, right? Rage is valid in this moment. And and it really forced me to reflect Mm -hmm. on how I was just sort of unleashing anger and rage, righteously so, without really paying attention to what um, to what I was defending, yeah. and, how, and how, you know, um, how sometimes I was just projecting my hurt onto other people.
0: Exactly. Exactly. We weren't holding the anger. And a lot of us don't hold the anger. We don't contain it. And so it just becomes this expression that's like toxic energy that gets sprayed into the space around us. And it hurts people, and it hurts the environment, right? You know, because we're so disconnected from the hurt. Beneath it, you know, but once we start really connecting to the hurt, our anger becomes contained, it becomes cared for, mm-hmm. you know, so I can, I can, you know, I can be in situations where I'm, I'm experiencing a lot of anger, right, you know, but because I've done this work of taking care of the anger, and I've done the work of connecting to the broken heartedness beneath the anger, my anger is contained, it doesn't become emotional labor for you. Mm-hmm. But what it does become is a mirror. That reflects back to you the work that you should be doing and developing this kind of emotional labor for yourself.
1: Well, and the other thing that that I I sort of discovered along the way is this book is like a journey. You know?
0: <laughs> it's a <laughs> mill, it's like a a, a multi-course mill that you have to take a break you know, you get a little full, you have to digest it, then you come back to it. Yeah. And
1: I, I do, I do. I eat it in small meals. Like I'm like, I have to, you know, I have to like take it in bites. But, um, but the other thing it gave me was direction, right? Because when I started to unpack what I was protecting and defending, yeah. it, it pointed to like my dharma and to my purpose. Like it actually was like, oh, this is why, because I was like, I had to really look at like, why do I get so fired up? Like there are times where like my rage is out of control. Yeah. It's like a, it's like an inferno. Mm-hmm. And I'm like Italian Irish. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I go off. Like everybody mm-hmm. out, know, who knows me knows that I mm-hmm. go off. Um, and and, in, and And instead of like letting myself go off at a time that actually allows for that in this particular moment, when I started to actually peel away the layers the heartbreak and the hurt was really pointing to like a wound around belonging. Yes. And it, and it, and I was like, Oh, that's why I fight so hard for that. Like it was like all of a sudden my purpose clicked in, right. And all of these pieces connected and I understood, um, what I love so much that's at stake.
0: Yes. Yes. Yeah. What are we fighting for? Yeah. You know, and why are we, why are we in a way manipulating anger to keep ourselves away from the discomfort
1: okay mm-hmm. so let's talk about that because um oof. so i want to talk about i actually listened to your story time i listened to a bunch uh, of your story times mm-hmm. um and in, the, in this one story time um you were talking about whiteness And you Mm -hmm. said to do this work of disrupting whiteness, you need to get Mm -hmm. dirty. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. And you
1: have to get personal. Yeah. What do you mean by you need to get dirty?
0: Well, you need to challenge this narrative of being a good person. Mm -hmm. Because whiteness is so intimately tied to the sense of false virtue. You know, so the, the mechanism is, is that if I begin, as a white person, if I begin to question, challenge, or name whiteness, then there's this thing that kicks in that makes me start thinking, oh, I'm not a good person. This is, this is not what a good white person does, it's question this. So in order to move into whiteness, you have to like hold the space for disrupting your fixation to this narrative of being good, you know? And this is why I say in the book, like let go of being a good person you know you may we have these narratives oh you know you can be a good guy you can be a good boy you can be a good girl like these ways in which you know goodness is applied to like the binary and to gender and everything like that so you have to wipe that all away we were all raised at least many people i've talked to have been raised with that narrative at least i was i knew early on the work that it took for me to be a good boy, because that was about belonging. If I was a good boy and made good grades and was nice and polite, you know, then I would belong, you know, and I would get the resources that I need, including love,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, well, it's also about conforming,
0: it's exactly conforming, assimilating, fitting in at all costs. Right. You know? And so now for me, my practice is, okay, I just want to, Practice goodness in the moment. I want to make a choice in each moment, you know? And then when I'm making choices to be good in the moment, then I can see all the ways in which I'm not practicing goodness. Mm. And that becomes work for me to move towards and into, right? You know, if I'm just a good person, then it's going to be really hard for me to see the edges and the shadows because this idea of being a good person is very solid, is very, it's, a, it's a static position. This is just who I am. I'm self-identified with goodness. And that's really not the case. We are complex, nuanced beings, you know, who are not always making the right choices to promote goodness and virtue and nonviolence and so forth. One so, of the re- mm-hmm.
1: I was just gonna say one of the reframes that you give in that same talk is that um, goodness is, um, I think you say something like goodness is about Um, harm reduction. Yes. It's about, um, you know, reducing violence. Yes. Like, if that's the benchmark for goodness, and we just do that all the time, we'd be so much better than just trying to be good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's about looking at every moment and saying, how can I be the least violent I can be in this moment? Mm -hmm. Knowing that I am not going to always get it right. Knowing also, just to even make this more complex, knowing that sometimes i have to practice aggression and violence in order to disrupt aggression and violence in the space in order to disarm and minimize the harm i have to get harmful well
1: you and know? that goes back to the skillfulness i feel yeah. like that you're you're calling for in this book right because yeah. if we're doing the work around our anger we can channel anger in a way yeah. that disrupts without flinging our our trauma and our harm
0: yeah yeah to other well, And that's that's a really good point, because I think that you have to do work with this book. This isn't a book that you just read and you're going to get everything. It's not, I didn't write it like that. This is a book that you have to journey with. You know, I, I remember Alice Walker for Radical Dharma, when she endorsed the book, she was like, this is the book you roll with, this is the book you journey with, you know, and I couldn't get Alice to endorse the book. In Love and Rage, you know, because it was so I was on a very short time frame, but I, you know, this is a book that you have to accompany and be with you have to this book is going to change you, you know, so I think we're used to consuming things we're used to particularly in the industrial spiritual complex you know all the self-help hey. spiritual industrial complex hey. that we find ourselves in you know i think many teachers are in this habit of just like giving these consumable tidbits mm-hmm. you know but this isn't a consumable this is not consumable it's not a tidbit mm-hmm. you know this is something that's it's a that's reckoning. Call- is it reckoning yeah it's calling you into like this deep discernment you know and if you're not ready to do the work, this isn't the book, like you won't get it.
1: Yeah, it's funny cause I feel like I'm connecting like a million dots from your book right now because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about another thing that you say is um, you talk about um, how we move beyond the illusion of whiteness which I found it sounds like is connected to how we move beyond the the surface layer of anger like how do we peel because you ask you ask it in that talk you ask like how do we be with the 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 pain and the trauma of whiteness yeah Yeah. what are we avoiding yeah yeah how are we not confronting the cost of whiteness on our bodies and on our souls on one another right on the collective Mm -hmm. and you know i i think about that as a white person especially when i'm thinking about like you know what am i attached to about whiteness And it brings me back to what you started with around lineage and how actually if I can like know what's at my back and how I got here, I don't have to cling to this artificial construct.
0: Yeah, there's a courage that comes into this, you know, we have to have the courage to turn back into this mountain of trauma that is at the roots of whiteness you know, this this calculated and precise construction of an identity at the expense of black and brown people, you know, initially at the expense of black people, of enslaved folks, Af- folks of African descent. You know, that's what you have to turn back into and that history is pain, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking and that sometimes I don't believe that everyone has the capacity or the resiliency to do that
1: to face that
0: yeah to face that because I don't want to excuse anyone at all from doing the work but I also want to say that it's a tremendous amount of work you know to enter into this kind of discomfort you know but you understand from the book that you know it's discomfort isn't the issue, you know, because we have these incredible resources and practices to hold that discomfort. And we have to learn to undo whiteness. You have to learn to surrender to sources of refuge that can hold you as this identity um, is disrupted. And you come into a deeper, more authentic expression of who you are.
1: Well, and it reminds me too of what you were saying about liberation, because I think once you connect to the heartbreak and the hurt that is whiteness, you can't, you can't, you can't turn back. You just can't. And I I just think about like white fragility and all of the the contortionist ways that we try to defend and prevent ourselves from touching down on that pain Mm -hmm. and that anger Um, and how we really twist ourselves into like all sorts of shapes and forms to avoid that. Um, And yet that is the very thing that will set us free
0: it sounds so antithetical to the project of spiritual awakening you know because we've spiritual awakening has been co-opted by the marketplace you know and capitalism and so many of us have been you know uh, led into believing that the spiritual practice is something that's supposed to be about happiness you know and having fun you know and going to like you know beautiful spas and like looking beautiful and having the right clothes, you know, and really the spiritual path is really about work, the work, you know, and if you're not ready to do the work, then it's, it's okay. Actually, I'm in this place in my life where I'm okay with you, not being able to do the work or not choosing to do the work, you know, because we're on a continuum here. Mm you know um but you have to be willing if you choose not to do the work or can't do the work you also have to be willing for others around you to set boundaries Mm -hmm. and to say you know what i can't be in relationship with you if you're not doing this
1: well and i would argue you know as someone who you know i'm 45 years in a (laughs) white body i continue Mm -hmm. to like unlearn and that will be my life's journey obviously but as someone who is um, committed to doing the work of touching down on that hurt yeah. mm-hmm. the cost of not the cost of not touching down on it is very high too yes. for humanity yes. and for yes. and for people especially I'm thinking about sort of like the the spiritual industrial wellness complex whatever we're calling it. you know and how <laughs> you have these people that are, 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 are desperately seeking Feeling good, desperately seeking enlightenment, desperately seeking yeah. something, right? Yeah. Um, but refuse to to go to the distance, yeah. Um, yeah. right? Because you actually can't you can't attain the thing that you're reaching for without sort of unraveling.
0: Yeah. yeah, you know. And I also think about it like this: everyone's trying to get awakened, and you think getting awakened is about going up that actually awakening is about going forward. It's about actually moving along the earth and coming into contact with people in relationships and seeing one's awakening within relationship to other humans and in relationship to the planet. It's you
1: horizontal. Know,
0: it's horizontal. Like, we have to, we earn our ultimate experience by actually moving through the earth. The earth takes us up into heaven, you know? And yeah. it's we bypass so we bypass all of this by trying to go up into heaven you know when in fact heavens is right here in our relationships
1: yeah that's right as is freedom and liberation yes exactly and yeah. we keep trying to do all these things outside of ourselves thinking that's how we attain it mm-hmm. um, um i a woman um reached out to me on email today when she heard about this um conversation, Susan Bizo is her name, and she pointed me towards a passage in Radical Dharma that sort of mm-hmm. speaks to this about Sangha. Okay. And in it, you said, the Sangha is very important because it can reflect the things that we're missing, yeah. that we're bypassing. Yeah. Um, and I, I say this ag- full, like f- fully acknowledging that our, our Sanghas are also are not reflecting who we are right now exactly. Exactly. at the same time. Um, And so how do we do that? Like, how do we navigate Mm -hmm. um, the who's missing, the what's missing Mm -hmm. um, inside of Sangha, right? Mm -hmm. How do we stand in the, um, we're not there yet Mm -hmm. in Sangha Mm -hmm. and move forward together?
0: Yeah. Yeah, and it's so fascinating too, because that's part of the section that I read on Sunday in the Great Readathon, the Great Race, or wherever we called it. (laughs) <laughs> the, the readathon. The huh? the angel has like
1: 18 names for it. I know, I know,
0: and so do I, apparently. But, like, I so that's like, actually really fresh in my mind, that passage. Um, and I also say that, like, you know, sanghas aren't country clubs. You know, that's I also say that in that same section because, you know, again, like, we have this misunderstanding of sangha where we're like, oh, I, I come into the space, I'm supposed to feel good, you know? Where in fact, in fact, like we come into the space and the, the conflict that we experience is it's supposed to be a kind of sacred conflict because this conflict arises out of our needs, our desires to get awakened. And we're taking our relationships as the material for awakening, you know, um, there is a decentering of, of comforts and a recentering of discomfort in a way that is transformational and liberatory. You know, not something that becomes a burden, not something that's just there that we have to get through. It becomes the the material by which we actually experience awakening because as we engage in conflict with openness, lovingness, with compassion, with wisdom, we actually begin to awaken to our higher states of consciousness, our higher states of being. You know, our dharma is trained, should be trained in the Sangha. You know, our dharma won't be trained if we're always seeking comfort, right? If we're always seeking silence, if we're always seeking places where everyone looks like us. You know, and so I think that one of the things that has to happen now, I'm not so much into reforming anymore, but I'm really invested in creating new. Mm-hmm. spaces you know for people to really center this kind of work mm-hmm. you know I think this is the time that we're in this is a falling away this is the apocalypse you know I wrote so much about the apocalypse and love and rage you know because I want everyone to understand that, like no this is about letting go of these old structures and creating new structures it's about dreaming new ways of being free mm-hmm. you know because we realize that I mean there's so much at stake if we don't do the dreaming we get it now you know and more and more and more of us will get it by the end of the year that we have to dream new realities instead of being fixated on the old structures that were weren't really working for many of us
1: well and we're seeing this parallel right in in the sort of like defund police yes. um conversation and the abolitionist yes. conversation that it's yes. not about reform there is no reform no. at this point it's, it's about it's really about like the full unraveling and deconstructing yeah. so that we can actually imagine the thing that's never been
0: yeah it's telling the truth it's, it's letting go of these narratives, these fantasies, you know, and just telling the truth. No, like, this doesn't work anymore. This has never worked, you know. If we can just let go of that and then be and practice this kind of courageousness to step into a new truth, you know, a new reality, a new dream that's actually about everyone getting the resources that they need, you know. We have to yeah. challenge that for ourselves. It's like, I have to be willing at some point to think about the collective.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was just going to speak. I mean, I was, you were just made me think of faith as you were saying that, like there's yes. faith involved yes. because in some ways there's no ground, right? No. Like we're, we're moving into groundlessness yes. in the way that our practice calls us to. Exactly. Um, but it's also making me think about, and, and this is why I wanted to ask about Sangha, how, um, Um, not only is so much of the sort of um, um, dominant culture of spiritual practice and wellness, um, not only is it material and shallow, but it's been so individualized like that we can just do all of this work um, within the safety and comfort of our cushion or our yoga mat. Mm -hmm. And, but, but, but that's not what you're naming um, here, right? Like you're naming that like they're in the in between nodes between people within Sangha is more room, more capacity, more yes. space. It's yes. just
0: more. Yes, you don't have to do it by yourself, and that's that kind of American individualism that perpetuates whiteness and drives the you know it drives the marketplace as well. Is that individual, that competition? You know, and because we know that like once we start thinking about collectives, collectives, when we really, like, it's not. It's more than just saying, okay, I'm a part of this group but saying even further that like I'm a part of this group and we're all trying to benefit the group together, you know, and we're going to center these qualities of compassion and wisdom and love and, and, and kindness and generosity. Like we're going to center these qualities and create a collective around that. And that's where stuff begins to change. That's where liberation really starts, you know? Um, But I just say, you know, I grew up in a collective, like, you know, I grew up in the black community, in the black community in the South. And like, there was, there was no point at which we ever thought that we were separate, mm-hmm. you know, that we were alone. You know, we were raised within the context that we were like, no, when you do something, like you're helping everyone else. You know, that's also, then the other side of that, that's also a function of systematic racism where like your force, to be a representative within a group right you know but in other but in in the more liberated sense of this kind of collective mentality it's like no we're we're in this together we're going to do this together we free each other
1: and Mm -hmm. i want to ask a a a a hard question about that because
0: Mm
1: -hmm. i think it's also um it's hard to be together right now across lines yes. of difference yes, exactly. um, because we're all having a really different experience of this yes. moment and that's real.
0: Yes.
1: Um, and so I'm wondering if you have, I feel like there's some, there's yes. some wisdom in the practices that you have in here around anger um, that and lineage even that, that can help us locate ourselves inside of those experiences. But I'm wondering if you can, cause I think some of what's also um, inspiring people to stay individualized is because they're afraid to step in to the collective because it's hot um and so and so i'm wondering like what is what does it look like in this particular moment we're while we're 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 on a journey (laughs) we're we're moving some we're coming from someplace clearly and we're moving someplace Um, what does it look like to come together in sangha across lines of difference Um, that that honors this practice but that that moves us forward you know it's not doesn't need to be perfect not good sangha but like what does that look like do you think
0: i think that being in relationship to our brokenheartedness no matter who we are is one of the most honest authentic and disarming things that we can do to create community together to sit together in the brokenheartedness. Not 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 to sit together in the fear of the brokenheartedness, not to sit together in the pity. In
1: mm, the fragility. The
0: fragility. It's sit I don't I don't need, you know, just to use this the binary here of black and white, I don't need necessarily white people to feel my pain. I needed them I need white people to feel their own pain. Yes. You know, feeling yeah. my pain is a it's a it's a bypass.
1: Yeah
0: you know if we we need to do in the collective like everyone is still called to do their individual work and in radical dharma i talk about going to a front line that's what allyship means for me and so your front line is going to the places where you hurts
1: yeah.
0: and developing the capacity to be at that hurts and to experience that hurt and i promise you once, once we develop the tools to experience the hurt we will begin to develop Authentic, loving, compassionate relationships with folks—you know—who um, who show up differently, who are different than us, no matter what that difference is. Like there's a holding our brokenheartedness as a language that's universal.
1: Yeah, and it feels different. I feel like we need to make this distinction because sometimes I think I think people, white people in particular, confuse discomfort with pain. Yeah, exactly. And that's not the same thing. Yeah
0: and how discomfort is wrong. (laughs) You know, there's something wrong about this, you know. Um, Or to be
1: avoided, or we must fix this because I feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we have to develop this critical awareness and critical sensibility to really identifying liberatory discomfort, you know. And discomfort becomes liberatory anyway when we are actually practicing awareness and holding space for, you know but you know i think that many of us believe that we won't survive our brokenheartedness you know that we we you know we will be annihilated by the brokenheartedness you know and i you know as if you read the book you know that like one of the things i say quite often is that you won't you can't be annihilated by something that is just an experience mm-hmm. you know my mind is Deeper, more spacious, is what without bounds it is nothing possible within phenomenal reality that can fill my mind and open my and 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 overwhelm me. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have to practice expanding, getting spacious. That's how I begin to consume the brokenheartedness through space. You know, so again, I become the mother. The mother, the feminine principle, is an expression of space itself, and so I begin. To take care of my brokenheartedness by expanding to the spaciousness, by becoming the mother who begins to tend to the brokenheartedness, mm. and in that case, I develop agency over the brokenheartedness, not the brokenheartedness having agency over me. Mm. You know, and that may yes. take our that will take our whole lives to do.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, but this well, is mm-hmm, go ahead.
1: Well, and I was just gonna you just made me think about too, like how. Um, not only will we survive but we will become more human like i i just think that there are so many parts of us that have been lost yes. to white supremacy Oh yeah.
0: so many parts that have been lost so many parts that have been consumed and annihilated within other groups of folks um white supremacy has cost us so much And I think that we're moving into this time where we're getting a little bankrupt. Like we're realizing that we don't have any more to give. There's no more to sacrifice to this, you know. Um, I think this is why we're in the largest, you know, American movement in history right now, as we're in the middle of a pandemic.
1: Well, and I I wanted to just bring you back to Apocalypse, um, but I do love how you write about Apocalypse, and I I think Apocalypse is misunderstood.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. People Mm -hmm. don't know
1: what, so can you share like what Apocalypse means and how it's this moment?
0: Yeah, yeah. So Apocalypse is, Apocalypse is a Greek word. It means uncovering, unveiling. Uh, And I remember it was exactly two years ago. It was two years ago when i was I, I remember the day i was in portland um oregon just about to give a dharma talk and i was preparing for the dharma talk just doing some reflection and i was just kind of like sc- scrolling online and i found a video um by nadia Bolz-Weber, who's one of like my favorite like spiritual leaders we love her. We I, love- I, I would love like on one day. yes <laughs>
1: And I would love
0: to like do something with her. Like I love her books, I love her presence, I love her straightforwardness. But she had put out a video on the apocalypse. And I, I watched it before giving this teaching. And in that moment, I was like, this is my teaching now. Like this is my teaching. You know? And ever since then I I knew what something was coming. You know, because a lot of astrologers and, and so forth, everyone was like 2020. 20. 2020. I'd never heard those predictions at all. I was just feeling this. I was like, "This is something we're changing." You know, the shit is about to hit the fan. Yeah. You know, the uh, great and reveal. the great reveal. So this isn't about the ending. This isn't about brimstone and hellfire and like all the stuff that maybe some of us grew up with in Abrahamic religions. No, it's really about truth. You know and it's painful because many of us are not interested in the truth or many of us have not dealt with the truth often so this is going to be really painful it's like one analogy that i used to use all the time it's like living in a dark room your whole life and then someone comes in and throws open the shades and the drapes and the sunlight comes pouring in and you're like what the hell you know, because your eyes aren't used to that. And I think that's exactly what we're going through. Our eyes aren't used yeah. to the light of truth now, but it's coming. And we we either have two choices. First choice is we get with it. We do the work. We begin to metabolize that truth. Or the second choice is we don't. You know, and if we choose not to get with this, then we, we're not going to make it. Yeah, you know? I think we
1: see that coming now. Yeah. Yeah that it's you know, extinction or it's liberation
0: yeah you know so i think i see a lot of people getting with it and doing the really hard struggling with the truth and i see also a lot of people who are like you know who you are know, comfortable who are comfortable and again i say that's okay because in my belief structure i believe in many lifetimes and so we're at where, where, where we're at well i will say this Wherever we're at, we're at, you know? And maybe it's not our time to get woke, you know? Maybe the next lifetime, maybe in a year, you know, maybe 10 years from now. But maybe it's not our time to get woke. And that's okay, you know? And that comes from my practice. Like, that kind of compassion, that kindness is like, I'm not going to pull people along. Like, I'm not going to pull people kicking and screaming. We have to make a choice. Mm -hmm. to step into this light Mm -hmm. you know
1: well that's my organizing orientation too it's like we don't need everyone to win yeah we actually don't we just and there's there's actually enough of us that are on the brink
0: yeah exactly of,
1: of like letting letting the shit drop yeah um and yeah. and i and i just like love this idea of like the work is horizontal like if we can just like hold on to each other yeah. on the human plane mm-hmm. <laughs> you know rooted in like yeah. our ancestors and yeah. and spacious like the mother yeah. like we actually we can withstand the crumbling yeah,
0: yeah. exactly exactly and i you know i just really believe that like um for the folks we see who aren't doing the work, we have to mourn it, we have to mourn folks. You know, it's like we have to, we see it and we see people just not getting with it and you say, okay, you know, um, but that doesn't stop you from doing the work, Mm. right? You know, Um, and lastly, I'll say this, you know, because this is what I'm going to be exploring in my next book. So it's like a little bit of a preview, but um, I'm looking at the tradition of the Bodhisattva you know the spiritual saint the spiritual warrior within buddhism and just kind of reinterpreting that whole tradition for folks you know so much a part of the bodhisattva kind of mentality is that the bodhisattva stays like the bodhisattva is the last one the bodhisattva is pushing everyone guiding everyone towards freedom and i think that's a misunderstanding of the bodhisattva ideal um and what i understand the bodhisattva ideal to mean is that like i will come into the places that are really difficult to become an example Mm. i will become an inspiration but i can't not disrupt the work of my own enlightenment to to stay in ignorance yes you know so don't so i tell i say this to everyone don't be so upset that you're moving on you know like you're gonna move on you know but also Maintain the compassion that you know that there are people who may one day come to you for the help.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You know that they weren't maybe open around when you you know at the beginning of the work. So well,
1: it's a full uh, full circle to what Ryan started with, which is like um, even those people. Like, how do we love? (laughs) How do we love?
0: Yeah, you just you want people to be happy. That's it it's not a judgment it's not a value statement it's like I just want you to be happy I want you to be free from suffering that's it you know and I keep that really strong even if you (laughs) get on my fucking nerves
1: I still (laughs) want
0: you to be happy even if you like believe in things that like are so
1: yeah
0: antithetical to everything that I stand for I still love you I still want you to be happy
1: While this podcast is coming to an end, our work in the world is just beginning. This week's call to action is to do the work of love and rage, to explore what our anger is trying to tell us so that we can tend to the hurt and the heartbreak that is our path to liberation. Be sure to pick up Lama Rod's book, Love and Rage, at LamaRod.com. And you can follow him on Instagram at LamaRodOwens. Special thanks to DJ Drez for the amazing soundtrack. You can check out his music at djdrez.com. And to our executive producer who puts it all together and makes it sound great, Trevor Exter. And thank you for being here today. You can stay in the know and engaged by subscribing to our free weekly newsletter, Well Read, at citizenwell.org. Citizen Podcast is community-inspired and crowdsourced. That's how we keep it real. Join our community on Patreon for as little as $2 per month so that we can keep doing the work of curating content that matters for citizens who care. And don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, and share the love, y'all, by telling your friends to check us out.